Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Ronnie. Um, okay, so really, thank you, Arlie, for showing up. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be speaking by myself in person, so it's really it's great to have you, especially. And, of course, everybody on Zoom, always a, beauty, a beautiful thing to have everyone joining. Um, so we're going to continue with Chapter 6 now. We, we left off in Chapter 5, very interestingly, with a couple of people that Kohelet, the author, says that are in a really bad scenario. One of them is the toiler, as we mentioned, who lived a dreary existence uh, while hoarding his wealth, somebody who gathered all that wealth and then lost it all, right? That was last Bedek. Uh, and then also a person who held on to all this wealth. He never lost the wealth, but he never actually uh, had a happy life, even though he had this, this wealth physically there. So he's going to add now to, to uh, the list of things that he considers a travesty of existence. Um, so we'll continue and we'll see exactly what that is. But again, it's going to be continuing with this theme of toil without profit, of working very hard without really seeing the fruits of your labor. So now we're going to see somebody when, when God gives him everything he could ever want. But the problem is another man is going to enjoy the fruits of this person's labor. And this really offends Kohelet's sense of justice and fairness in the world. How could it be that one person should strive for something and another person should eat the fruits of that labor? It really just doesn't seem fair. Um, and we, I, I find myself almost every week now quoting the Torah in terms of who are the people that need to return home before battle. Um, and those are the people that are, have built a house, um, and had not, had not lived in it yet, a person that has betrothed a woman but has not uh, yet married her, and also somebody who has um, who has not uh, who has planted a vineyard but has not yet enjoyed the fruits physically. So it, the idea there, the Torah seems to be saying, is that what a, sh a shame it would be for somebody to do all that work and never actually live to enjoy the fruits of their labor. There's something so meaningful about the human condition when we recognize the transience of everything. And then the meaning of all of it comes together when you realize like, okay, you have to find a way to get people to enjoy the fruits of their labor in this lifetime, because otherwise it would be the biggest shame in the world. And I don't know why, but, but I think Rabbi David Foreman mentions the movie. Have you guys seen it? Maybe you probably have. It's called Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure it's a very famous movie. You've probably all seen it. Uh, you haven't seen it early. Okay. Uh, how about you guys on Zoom? You've ever seen Saving Private Ryan? No? Yeah, Victor's seen it. So, yeah, of course. Of course. Great of course. movie. Beautiful. It's, it's, by the way, the people who have, uh, who actually fought in D-Day, when they watched this movie, they said to themselves, oh my God, this is incredible. They actually told, it's like they interviewed them, like, this is so accurate. So it's a really accurate portrayal. And the whole basis of the, of the movie is that during World War II, uh, there was a, a group of brothers, all of whom died in the, bat, in the battles of World War II for, in America, for America, except for one person. And his name was Ryan. You know? And uh, the, the idea was that you have to go and save this guy because how could the mother of all these children lose all her kids in one war? It does not seem fair. Um, so there's something about this idea of a legacy of leaving something behind of the biggest shame in the world would be to build something and to not have anything left over from it. 
So it's that kind of same concept that's I feel like underlying all of this, where you come face to face with mortality, you come face to face with transience, and we feel like, okay, we have to do everything possible to prevent this from happening. And that's what the whole movie of Saving Private Ryan is about. We have to do everything possible to save this one guy. We have to do everything possible not to let this person going out to battle die because he just got engaged and he still didn't get married and all, all that kind of thing. So it's really a, a very meaningful uh, thing to ponder. Um, and then the last point I'll make before we jump into the text is that the real problem going on, according to Kohelet here, is the waste of the opportunity to have the one good thing in life, which is, who can guess? It's the idea to enjoy pleasure. It's the, it's the, the ability to live long enough to physically enjoy the fruits of one's labor, like we we're mention, mentioning, but it's not just any type of enjoyment. It's actual physical pleasure. Um, so the moral that Kohelet is trying to leave us with is, and I, the reason I make that distinction is because he doesn't mention any other kind of satisfaction in life that's worth living for. Really, it's physical pleasure. That's where he leaves it at. And we'll, we'll touch upon that again soon. But uh, the idea of physical pleasure is really where it's at for him. So his moral is seize the moment, carpe diem, because the next one is beyond your control. The next moment is not guaranteed. You might as well, and it's your, you would be wise to enjoy this very moment. And you can imagine, especially people living in the ancient world, it was such a tumultuous time. How could they go out and, and you know, rely on there being a next day? It made a lot of sense just to enjoy that day because you never know if you're going to be pillaged uh, the next day by a group of bandits or pirates or whatever it may be. So that's interesting. We don't we have the luxury today of not really worrying about such things. Michael, I want to want to mention something. Yeah. Um, with regards to the Saving Private Ryan, and also with regards to the uh, the three uh, people who get excused from from going out to battle, I, I don't think it's so. In, in other words, what I'm saying is, um, of course, you know, enjoying uh, pleasure you know, is, is, is proper. Um, and, and I agree with Kohelet about that. But I think what the Torah is saying, and that speaks to, you know, I think a common human feeling is that the, the pr- pleasure, you know, the fruits of your labor is actually more um, kind of natural, meaning to be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor, to invest in, you know, a, a bride or a vineyard or a house, and then not to be able to occupy it or enjoy it, that is against the, the grain, against the natural law um, of what, you know, what we expect. And, and it's a violation of what we hold dear uh, somehow. And it really irritates us if that were to happen. Yes. I think the, so, so meaning it's not just enjoying pleasure, it's enjoying pleasure specifically as a result of your investment and your labor. We, when we put, put in, you know, when we cultivate a field, we then, you know, like, like, you know, your love is really work. Like it's hard to love something if you don't work for it. And like children, you know, the reason you love your children, one of the reasons is because you spend so much time, you know, dealing with them, investing in them. And then if uh, something happens, you know, Again, obviously, we're humans. We care about each other for other reasons. But psychologically, there is something to it. The more work you put into something, the more investment of your time, your life, then the more, you know, if something happens to that thing, person, it's, it's, it's a horrible, it's horrible to you. 
Um, so it's not just, that's what I mean. I'm disagreeing with Kohelet because it's not just pleasure. It, actually, the pleasure doesn't even mean as much if you don't put the work in for it. Yes, I agree with your disagreement. <laughs> I 100% do. Yes, Albert, you want to say something? Yeah, that's funny. You caught that, huh? <laughs> um, like on the yeah. <laughs> it's that big, huh? Okay. So Rabbi Torsky has a beautiful video um, regarding, he, he, he talks about love, what love is. And um, I don't want to ruin the whole video, but I guess the bottom line, and it's very short. It's only a two minute or three minute clip. You can find it on YouTube. Um, but the bottom line is that he says, you, we have it backwards in the Western world. And it's it, what, how it really works is we lo- we lo- the people we love is to, is to who we give. You know, mm. we love to whom we give of ourselves. Yes. Um, uh-huh. so, so I think that it, it, it goes to um, what Nasser was just saying. Um, I think it also applies to things. You know, you invest yourself in, in certain things. You cultivate a field, you build a house, you know. So I, I, think, I think it really could apply to that. Absolutely. We love what we give to. And mm. that's like the word have in the word ahava. I'm not sure if it's actually technically where the word comes from, but it's a nice derasha that people make that ahava has the word have in it. And you, like the word hava libanim, hava means give me. So ahava has the word give within it, according to these uh, rabbis who say it. And they say it's so beautiful that to love really is about giving. When you give of yourself into something or someone for, for, for a period of time, you, you learn to love it. And that's such a beautiful idea. Um, we're investing, we're investing a piece of ourselves. And uh, in a way we can understand God's love uh, for the entire universe, for the world, for us, through his giving to us life. And it's just a beautiful concept. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. I 100% agree. Um, Ooh, the video, it's very nice. It's a very nice, cute I, clip. I, I could use that 100%. I love Rabbi Tversky. Thank you. Okay. Great, right, so let's 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 dive into the text and let's see what we make of it. There is an evil I have observed under the sun, and the grave one it is for man. So there's something really bad. What is this thing that's so bad? That God sometimes grants a man. Riches, property, and wealth, so that he does not want for anything his appetite may crave. But God does not permit him to enjoy it, right? Instead, a stranger will enjoy it. That is futility and the grievous ill. So there's really the worst thing that he could conceive of, Kohelet is that someone's prestige, right, their kavod, their honor, along with their wealth and their material possessions should kind of be passed on to another person who didn't earn it. And there's a, there's a lack of fairness and a lack of justice in that. Um, and another, you know, other intangibles that go along with wealth that he's mentioned previously in the book are wisdom and knowledge. So you could add that to the list, prestige, Wisdom, knowledge, and your physical wealth, if that's all passed on to someone who doesn't deserve it, or if it's passed on and not enjoyed by you who did des- does deserve it, 
that's the biggest shame that he can imagine. Um, and the, the idea of enjoying it, that he's saying, Yochelenu, right? Le'achomimenu. What should you do? You should, he recommends timely consumption of wealth. That's the key. He says, I want you to make sure to make the time to enjoy your wealth physically before it's too late. So that's an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, as she likes to do, but she says that really this idea is a double enjoyment you get satisfaction from your own wealth and also from enjoying the fruits of righteous deeds. So he agrees with Kohelet about the physical wealth, but also he adds learning Torah. So we kind of, sometimes we roll our eyes at Rashi. We say, clearly, that's not what Kohelet means. And I usually don't really mention what Rashi is going to say for that reason, because I don't think it's exactly the Peshat. But, I, but of course, there is a value to reading what Rashi has to say. But here in particular, I said we have to bring it up because... Michael Fox makes such a brilliant comment about it. He says, Kohelet does not give thought to the pleasure of performance of good deeds and study of Torah. So it's, it's, it's highlighting the fact that Kohelet never mentions this. And Dr. Nasser, I think this is part of what you were saying, that Kohelet is, is audibly silent regarding these things that we all find so meaningful and pleasurable beyond physical pleasure. Right, so, so, so I yeah, think but we a, have to read to the end of the book. Maybe he'll surprise us. <laughs> ah, yes, I, amen. I'm still holding out hope. Me too. I, I, I definitely agree. Um, so, so that's why Michael Fox comments and he says that she and other traditional interpreters have a richer and more subtle sense of the potential meaning of doing good and enjoying the good than the author did. So even Kohelet himself didn't have as meaningful an understanding of his own words as Rashi does which is an incredible concept. If only he could have understood that real happiness doesn't come from things like physical pleasure only. Of course, real happiness comes from investing in a family, in a community, in a group that's larger than yourself and doing good deeds. Um, and you know, we, don't, we haven't really seen him discuss that much. So let's hold out some hope. Maybe he'll touch upon that a little bit. So, so far, um... This is kind of parallel to what he was describing earlier in regarding, um, you know, a son who kind of inherits all the wealth and didn't have to, uh, didn't have to. Yes. Earn. So I'm curious to yes. see how this is going to differ from that. Yes. Good, good point. Um, I think he's building on that exactly. And let's see, let's see, maybe, maybe he'll make a nuanced point that's uh, going to add to our understanding of that because it basically the bottom line seems to be like it's heavy. It's just meaningless, and that's that. But he's he's kind of adding a new shade of meaninglessness to it. So let's see how he emphasizes it in verse three. Im yolid ishmeah v'shanim rabot yichyeh v'rav sheyu yemei shana v'nafsho lotes v'amenat tova. Right, even if a man should beget a hundred children and live many years, no matter how many the days of his years may come to, right. Uh, if his gullet is not sated through his wealth, oh, so that's the stillbirth, I say, though it was not even accorded a burial, is more fortunate than he. So this is really the saddest thing that, what is he saying? He's saying, even if you have a lot of children, or if you live many years, so progeny and long life, things that you might think, that we were actually mentioning 
could be sources of real pleasure. So he, he kind of is addressing part of what we were saying. We were saying good deeds, but you could throw in there building a family, living a long life. He's saying, even if you have all that, you know what? At the end of the day, if you don't enjoy your wealth in a timely manner and you and your wealth is passed on to somebody else, your physical wealth, your pleasures, then it's better for you never to have been born and a stillborn is luckier than you and he's more fortunate than you. And that's so sad because it seems like he really does believe that the only source of any worthwhile living is physical pleasure. This is so hard to relate to. Like, I don't even understand what he's saying. You know, like, I, I can't, I don't get it. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. You know, I, a part of me does understand it just from speaking to a lot of kids my age. Nihilism is such a prevalent idea in society today. We talk about anomie on the societal level, but nihilism on the individual level, if you're not deeply rooted in a foundation of religion, if you don't buy into the dogma, it's very easy for people to completely see meaninglessness in their lives and be depressed. To me, it's a, it's a sign of deep, deep depression when you get to this level of there's nothing beyond the physical pleasure. I think that's really what it's trying to say. Question? Yes, Albert, please. So, uh, just to be a little bit of a lawyer here. Um, <laughs> We define, because may, maybe it'll help us, because I completely agree with Dr. Nasser. To me, it's hard to comprehend this. And I think we, you know, we get it, but we don't get it. So can we define what he means by enjoying wealth? So is yes. it kind of like, Michael, is it like, is it not actual monetary uh, wealth? Is it more point. of like, enjoy your lot in life? Good point. We're going to get to exactly that in a few pesukim. You, you're really, that was a brilliant, brilliant point, because... He's going to make exactly that distinction very, very soon. Okay. Which is a little ironic because, you know, because we're thinking of it as, oh, just amassing uh, physical pleasures, but we're going to see he, he's not all about amassing it. He's about enjoying what you already do have. So that's a great point. Good. So the idea of nefesh, I know they, they translate it here as gullet, but nefesh really means life force or just, it doesn't really mean the soul like it does in modern Hebrew, nefesh. In modern Hebrew, means like neshama, but in, in ancient Hebrew, it's more about your life force, the, to, the sum total of your desires and your emotions and your thoughts. Um, so, and then, and then another point here is uh, just in terms of, of translating the, the pasuk properly with the syntax and everything of where does this vegam kibura lo haitel lo, you know, you might want to um, ascribe that to the not to the stillborn, right? The, we this that's how the NJPS translated translates it. That the kivura that's lacking is to the stillborn, but really it seems from the pasuk that it's talking about the person, the man who was not able to enjoy his wealth. So it's almost like just adding insult to injury, if you want to interpret it that way. That it could be that there's a, an adult person that lived out his life and didn't enjoy the fruits of his labor, um, but. He also is lacking a burial, and that's added to the list of his misfortunes. Uh, even after his death, um, he's, he fades into a quick memory. So however you, you prefer to ascribe that phrase of vegam it seems to make some sense either way. All right, questions about that? 
Okay, great. Um, let's see. And, and just, you know, uh, in chapter two, we saw that same idea, right? That if you, if you uh, completely, um, let's see, chapter two, verse 16, just to refresh our memories, because it seems like it's referencing that in a way. Right, because the wise man, just like the fool, is not remembered forever. The wise man dies just like the fool. So it seems like that kind of spirit is reflected here as well. That you could, you know, just to to emphasize the point, you're going to die, and it could even be without a burial, if you want to. Interpret it that way. Okay. Um, and just to give you more context, does anybody know who are the people in the Tanakh that you know of that literally say this exact same idea that if they had never been born and never seen the, the sorrows of life, they would have been more fortunate, right? So they bewail the fact that they were ever born. Anybody know which people in the Tanakh said that? <laughs> so the first one is, is Yirmiyahu, Yirmiyahu and Perekaf, after, you know, all the injustice that he experiences in his lifetime during the destruction of the, sec- of the first temple, and just the injustice in general that was going on um, by Am Yisrael. And Eov also, Eov is so saddened by everything that befalls him, all the tragedy that he prefers to have never been born. And it's it's really the saddest thing that one can think of is this idea of not wanting to ever be because of the difficulty that they're going through. And clearly Kohelet was going through some very deep things and very difficult emotional things that led him to a lot of these conclusions. Um, and, you know, there are times in all of our lives where we'll feel depressed and maybe we'll even get to this level, but, the point of it is not to wallow in it. The point of it is to allow your support system to lift you back up, the groups that you belong to, to lift you back up, your faith in God to lift you back up, because these are real tangible things that will help you and will save you. There's a beautiful meditation that I learned um, in a book called Buddha's Brain. And the meditation is about your refuges. Refuges could be internal things that save you and they catch you when you're falling. So if you're falling emotionally, you could be caught by a memory or by someone who loves you or by a group that you belong to or by just an idea. And these refuges are just a happy place in your mind. And you can meditate for you to yourself. What are these things? How can I set them up in my mind so that the next time I find myself at a low point, I can allow these things to catch me when I'm falling? To me, that's such a beautiful idea because it, it comes in handy whenever you're going through difficult times, just to recall some of these things, um, because they'll sometimes they naturally catch you, but sometimes you have to think of them to catch you. Um, and if only Kohelet had that more often in his book, you know, it seems like he really strips it down just to physical pleasure in the moment. Um, and that seems to be, to me, a sign of, of deep meaninglessness and depression. Um, so let's continue on with verse four. Though it comes into futility and departs into darkness, and its very name is covered with darkness, 
גם שמש לא ראה ולא ידע נחת לזה מזה. Though it has never seen or experienced the sun, is better off than he. Right, so it's, this is talking about, according to this interpretation, it's talking about the nephil, it's talking about the stillbirth. And this, this child who was never given life, even though he never was, you know, actually alive, um, he never experienced the world, never experienced the sun, he's still better off. That's basically what it's saying. But interestingly, you don't have to interpret it as this being talking about the stillbirth. Really, the subject of these pesukim could be regarding the, the man himself who died without ever, ever enjoying all of the, the fruits of his, of his wealth. Um, and if you read it that way, it's, and so first of all, there's an ambiguity in the Pasuk, according to Michael Fox, that is itself ironic, right? So, because it could either be talking about the stillbirth or the unfortunate man, and that's the whole point, is they're the same. We don't quite know which one it's talking about. Is it the, the man or is it the guy who's never born? Well, they're both going to end up in the same place. So it's almost like there's an intentional ambiguity here because Kohelet wants you to be like, wait, who am I talking about? That's the point. They're both the same, the stillbirth and the guy who doesn't enjoy his wealth, right? So if you want to interpret this as the, uh, talking about the guy, for he comes in senselessness, heaven and departs into darkness and his very name is covered with darkness. Even the one who has never seen or experienced the sun is better off than him. Right. So the reason you might, you might want to say that it's talking about this man is because it wouldn't really make sense to talk about Shemoye who said then his name will be covered in darkness about the stillbirth because the stillbirth never even was given a name. So it must be talking about the man according to this interpretation. Um, so now let's see how Pasuk uh, 6 is going to uh, build off of this. Hold on. Hold on. <clears throat> I think the name stillbirth is covered in darkness. I mean, maybe I'm, it's not literal, but meaning no one wants to talk about a stillbirth. It's, it's a horrible thing. So even though it's have a proper name, but just the, the thought or the, the, the way you refer to a stillbirth, you I mean, is, is a dark name. That's how I thought wow. of it. I love that so much. I think it might even be the Peshat. How about that? I think NJPS agrees with you. That's great. Thank you. Well, of course. No, that's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way, but that's really perfect. Um, Right? Yes, even if the other, and we don't know who that other is, is it the stillbirth of the man, lived a thousand years twice over, but never had his fill of enjoyment, for are not both of them bound to the same place. Right? So again, that intentional ambiguity, but everybody's going to end up dying. Everyone's ending up, you know, without any real solidified future. So then it really just doesn't make any sense anyway, right? So there's, there's a broken syntax here that's reflecting. I love when the, when the uh, structure of the Pizukim reflects the content. The broken syntax is reflecting his broken state of mind, right? He's starting out listing conditions for a desirable life. It's, right, we're reflecting again what we said in verse 3, which was, so progeny and long life. We're trying to repeat that again. Even if he lived a long life and had a lot of kids, he starts listing it, but then he just falls apart. And he's saying, he just gives up. And he exclaims in despair and frustration on the universality of death's power. So he's trying to do again what he did in verse three, but it's like, you know what? To hell with that. 
everything's meaningless. Everyone's going to die. Um, and, and it's ironic again, and this is what Michael Fox points out, that the complaint of Kohelet itself is illogical. Because what is he complaining? He's complaining that everyone dies. But Kohelet, if life itself is so bad, then why are you complaining about death? Death should be simple. It should be like a, like a relief. If life is so meaningless, then why are you complaining about death? So the answer, it seems, is, is reflected in different uh, points in the book. He reflects this in chapter 11, which we haven't gone to yet. But the idea that somehow life is still better than death, for sweet is the light. So it's, it's similar to what we said about wisdom and folly. Even though wisdom is, is folly itself and, you know, uh, and foolishness uh, is, is just as valuable as, as wisdom, at the end of the day, Kohelet still values wisdom. And he wrote the book all about wisdom. So despite his own you know, uh, depression about these ideas about wisdom and about life itself, he still intuitively knows that there's a value to wisdom and life. So I think this is a beautiful petach of awe for us. It's a beautiful petach that we see that certain things are infinitely meaningful in and of themselves, such as life itself. Life itself, when you're really experiencing beauty and meaningful interactions with people and places and things and whatever it may be, you have those moments where you realize life is inherently meaningful. And I think Kohelet himself knew that which is why he's lamenting the death of both of them at the same time. And the same thing with wisdom. When you're engaged in wisdom, it's such a beautiful thing that you feel it's inherently meaningful and it doesn't need to justify itself. So I think that's really just a profound, profound idea. Despite Kohelet's words, we could kind of see beneath the surface, his own intuitions imply that he does believe that life itself has more meaning than death and that wisdom has more meaning and folly. I think that's a really amazing idea. So now we're up to the second section of our chapter. It's a pretty short chapter. Mike, yes, please. I'm just curious. Where, where did you, um, where, where did the word meaning, how did that grasp you? Where did that come from? The reason why I ask is because uh, Jordan Peterson talks about that a lot. Ah, you know, good question. To, so to, I think, of, to pursue a life of meaning. You know, and that's a yes. whole other discussion, but I'm just wondering where that came from. Yeah, I think the whole book of Kohelet is, is his claim that things are meaningless and life is meaningless, except for certain things that he thinks are the most meaningful, despite them not being so meaningful. So when he talks about Ra'ayon Ruach, that's like meaninglessness, Hevel, Havel, meaninglessness. So the reason I brought, brought up meaning is because that's what he's looking for. If he's talking about what's meaningless, he's right. looking for meaning and not finding it. But my argument is he has found it a little bit in life itself and in wisdom because he, he does see their value in, in light of death and folly. Does that make sense? Just because he's been talking about meaninglessness. Right. So clearly he's looking for meaning. He's looking for meaning, right. That's the whole book, you know? Right. Good question, though. Really fantastic question. Makes a lot of um, sense. Thank yeah. you. Of course. Any other questions before we move on? Any other comments before we move on to the next section? Okay, let's do it. Right. So now the next section, which is verses seven through nine, is going to be talking about the impossibility of satisfaction, that it's impossible to really be satisfied. Right. So let's see what he has to say here. You know, in case we couldn't get more depressing. Say it again. 
Oh, oh, wow, that's great. You got to invite me next time. Right? So satisfaction in what we currently possess. Now, Albert, this is why I was so impressed with what you said earlier, is because this section is going to make the exact distinction that you made. Right? So there's a difference. And now pay attention to this. We have to distinguish between satisfaction for what we currently possess versus satisfaction regarding things we are seeking but don't yet have, right? So the first one is what he calls the sight of the eyes. The sight of the eyes is what's already in front of your eyes. It's what's already there. If you could be satisfied with that, great. But the other thing is called wandering of the soul. When your soul, or not really soul, but your nefesh, your life force, your desires are going here and there and everywhere and to all these things that you don't have, that's really when you see the most meaninglessness and that's what he's going to criticize. So you should make a different distinction between that which you currently possess and that which you do not possess because what you don't possess is really an illusion because the craving for the extra wealth is insatiable. You'll never be satisfied with what you don't already have, right? And it makes no sense to therefore try and amass more and more and more wealth because you're never going to be satisfied no matter how much you have, right? So let's see how the Pesukim reflect this. Any, any questions yet? I have a comment. Um, yes, it's easy to say some of these things when you're wealthy already, is all I would say, yeah. you know, because, uh, yeah, I find like, oh, sure, you know, I don't, I'm not going you know, to get into personal, but, you know, I, I'm, I have a similar perspective, but if you're really struggling to make ends meet, and you don't have anything, you know, it's a different perspective on life. Uh, you, you're not, first of all, you're not pondering these things, you know, you're just kind of trying to try trying to make ends meet every day. And second of all, you know, you don't have anything. So there's, there's nothing that you could appreciate. You can only appreciate the possibility of having something in the future. Absolutely. This, this has to be coming from somebody like Kohelet, who clearly was a wealthy person and yeah, he had it all, right? Like he says in the beginning, and that's why he gives us this particular perspective. And you're right. It is easy for him to say. So, um, if, so let's see. If I could run this thought by someone, it's something that I thought of. I never really um, shared it with, with anyone. And I'm just curious to know what people would think. So, of course, well, of course, we've always heard this, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. But I was just wondering, maybe it's that wealth or or not even wealth, but a certain level of, of monetary means avoids negative emotion. Yes, there, but, there are many things that but say I, that. But what I think is... By the way, money does buy a certain amount of happiness. That has been proven. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That's interesting. But I, I thought definitively, like all across, you know, all across the globe, what, what's really going on is that, you know, a certain level of monetary means, minimal monetary means will avoid negative emotion, stress yes. and, and things. But I, I think- Yeah, you have it right in that. You're, you're 100% I right about there's, that. There's no limit to the fact that, you know, money, maybe you're saying it can buy some happiness, but, you know, maybe you could speak to that. But I always- well, No, no, we're saying the same thing. It can't buy, positive, the, it can't buy positive emotion. The studies that, that I'm referring to, what they found is that increased wealth did increase happiness when you go from abject poverty to the middle class, which is kind of what you're saying. 
once you go to a certain comfort level, adding more money, since it's not removing pain and suffering any longer, you know, it's no longer removing negative things. It's just kind of adding to your existing life. Then at that point, in other words, let's say, you, let's say you have everything you need already. You're making $200,000 a year. Now you have another $50,000 a year. I mean, how much happiness is that? Now you have another 50,000. Well, is there more happiness there? Now you have another, at some point, no, it really, now it's really what, how you live your life is going to be determining how happy you are. But when you go from 20,000 to $30,000, you know, I mean, that's, that's a huge difference. Um, So that's where the happiness is is being bought. But I think you're saying the same thing, just slightly differently. Right. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Right. Once you reach a certain threshold beyond that point, you know, you're not going to get any happier just by amassing wealth. But if you're below that point, you will be less happy because you're just in abject poverty. Right. right. So it's that's, that's definitely an important point. It's, it's, it's a negative emotion. I think that's what it is. But I don't think, I don't yeah. think, I don't think a money could buy you positive emotion. I mean, it could buy you positive experiences. Yeah. Maybe. I agree. So that's, you know, one of the things that Jonathan I talks about in his happiness hypothesis, which I highly recommend is the idea that we love to hear from people, like everyone loves to say happiness comes from within, happiness is self-generated. He says that's not entirely true. Happiness, he says, actually comes from between. Happiness comes from your interaction with something that's larger than yourself, whether that's a group, whether that's religion, whether that's an experience, whether that's going out into nature, meaningful work, meaningful relationships, love, things like that, you know, you know, you, you're, we're not isolated islands of happiness. So that's just, I think, another important point to make in this context. Right. So let's see what the Pesukim said. I just yeah, bought the book, at- by the way. Oh, no way. I love it. I love the cover. It's, uh, I, haven't, I haven't started it yet. It's next on, uh, it's next on the list. You're going to love it. You're not the writer. <laughs> Just remember, you're the, you're the entire, you're the elephant. You're not the rider only. Right. All of man's earning is for the sake of his mouth, yet his gullet is not sated. Right? So what does that mean? Right? You're doing all this stuff and you're, you're, you're amassing all this wealth in order to satisfy yourself, but it's never enough. You're never going to be satisfied no matter how much you accumulate, right? Um, what advantage then has the wise man over the fool? What advantage has the pauper who knows how to get on in life, right? So what does wisdom really do for you? And what advantage does the wise, the wisdom even, or the know-how of a, of a poor man, what is that going to do for him, right? So first of all, just to make a quick point here, is that this pasuk seems in a little bit of a way to interrupt the flow from verse 7 to verse 9. So you could take it as a parenthetical statement that in and of itself is trying to just give you this wisdom about wisdom and, and about know-how itself, right? That um, the acumen that one uses in gaining wealth or the intelligence or ingenuity that a person has don't really end up helping him in the long term because all this, all that ingenuity and all that wisdom and all that acumen and that you're using is for the sake of something that you're never going to attain. You want to use that wisdom just to gain more wealth, to be happier, 
but it's never going to be enough. So that wisdom, therefore, and that acumen means nothing because it's not going to get you real happiness. Right? So the wise pauper is not aided by his wisdom because his wisdom is, is asking him to achieve more and more wealth. And no matter how much he gets, he's never going to be happy. So we don't have to necessarily agree with somebody in abject poverty, but we can agree with somebody that's above that threshold of, of money that we mentioned already. Any questions so far? Just a disagreement. You know, we're assuming that the reason for the pursuit of the knowledge is for is to amass a greater amount of wealth. And I don't know if that's necessarily accurate. Yes, good point. And, but in this context, I think he's saying the person that, that is using his wisdom for that sake, the wisdom is then meaningless. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You know, it doesn't have to be that that's the only purpose of wisdom. Surely not. But like earlier in the book, if you're using wisdom to try to understand the world, you're also out of luck because you're not going to understand the world. So again, your your wisdom is meaningless. It's funny. My brother used to say something like this uh, about people in finance. You know, it's like, okay, they go, they, they manage money, but they're not really contributing anything to the world. Like they're not really, they're not making the world any better. <laughs> yeah, where they're just making they're just making wealthier people wealthier people more more wealthy. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's exactly it. You know, uh, for me, it's easy because I'm in medical school. I I know practically that I'm uh, I see the people in front of me that I hope to help, but with other jobs, it's more difficult to really relate to what are you really doing and for whom. When you said that about finance, it occurred to me. I know we're a little off topic that sometimes you get paid more to do things specifically because they're meaningless and, you know, never want to do them otherwise. So teachers, veterinarians, you know, there are certain positions of nurses in some states are very low paying, certainly home health aides, um, but they could be rewarding. You know, you have human contact, uh, you you know, you're, you're teaching kids, you're feeling, feeling satisfaction when you're just moving money around for rich people. I mean, that is one of the least, satisfying things you could possibly do with your life and it also happens to be very well paying yes that's that's a great point and uh you know that's that's the trade-off that a lot of us make uh is that we do things that are not inherently not necessarily as as inherently meaningful and they do provide us with that wealth and uh i guess you could do that in the context to your family or whatever it is but at the end of the day is the work that you're doing in and of itself meaningful if the answer is no, then it's kind of difficult to really find so much meaning in it. It's also quite That's a funny really... So I read so this I... book. I read this book not too long ago called called Give and Take. I think it was called, um, and it's about people who um, people who are givers and people who are takers, and people those who have giving personalities very often tend to be at the top of the. Um, financial ladder or at the bottom or more towards the bottom of the financial ladder but at both times we're happier they're they're very happy people as opposed to the takers who um i guess it's kind of hedging your bets like you never if you're a taker you're not going to end up being at the bottom but you're not going to make it to the top either um but they tend to not be happy people that's incredible that's really that, you know, that's that is exactly goes to show you that it really doesn't matter how much money you're making above that threshold. It's very much about the meaning 
underlying everything. And if you're, if you have that giving mindset, you're going to be happier. That's, that's a really, I would love to, uh, to read that one day. Thank you for, for telling me that. Yeah, that's awesome. For sure. Thank you. Um, so let's see verse nine. Is the feasting of the eyes more important than the pursuit of desire? That too is futility and pursuit of wind. So that's a difficult translation. And that's the way that the JPS translates it. But Michael Fox says, why would you state this as a question? This is not a question. This is a declarative statement. And in line with a lot of the, the wisdom statements that Kohelet gives, so there's no indication that the sentence is a question rather than a statement. We should translate instead and pay attention. Just simply, better the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Right? So that's what the point that Albert made earlier that I was trying to make, that there's a difference between which is the wealth that's in front of you, and that's good, versus which is the wandering of the desires of your soul, which is insatiable. So this represents versus Haloch Nafesh is somebody who's never satiated with what they have amassed and is always looking for the next thing and the next thing. Um, and that's entirely in accord with Kohelet's principles. Um, so, so a good example that Michael Fox gives here, I love this example. He says, if we are enjoying a good meal with friends, this is a sight of the eyes. And it is good, right? Because you're just physically enjoying what's in front of you with your friends. But if we start to think of other things we crave, a better cuisine, perhaps, or prestige, or success, or sex, we lose contact with the actual place and moment. And our soul departs, as it were, and wanders off to another non-existent place. Then the moment is depleted of meaning, and we have nothing. Right. So that's so beautiful because it brings in this idea of mindfulness that when you're in a certain moment, when you're with friends, when you're in a class, when you're eating a meal, if you're present, you know, if you're mindful of what's going on and you're paying attention, it's so beautiful and so meaningful. But if your mind is somewhere else and you're worrying, you could be in the most enjoyable scenario and you won't enjoy it because you're not actually there. Your mind is someplace else, and that's the idea of haloch nafesh. So I think that's a really brilliant piece of wisdom uh, to take away for our daily lives, that if you find yourself as one of these kind of people who is constantly worried about the, uh, a place where they're not currently, maybe it's time to start meditating. Maybe meditate more, and you know, it's not, it's not easy to, to have this mindset always, but if you find yourself when you're not in work, and you're with your family and you still can't enjoy yourself and it's Shabbat and you have no obligations, then you know it's something that you could work on uh, as a person just for your own sake and uh, cultivate that idea of mindfulness. Because to me, that's a very big key to really being a happier person overall. Um, so now just to the, the, the tail end of this pasuk, so Kohelet would call either one Hevel, so that's the interesting thing. Both Mare'e Ainaim and Haloch Nafesh, according to him, might just be equally Hevel. Now, why is that? Even the sight of the eyes, which he praises, might be Hevel. Why? Because for all his praise of pleasure, he judges it senseless. So at the end of the day, even if it's pleasure 
that's mare'inayim, even if it's pleasure right here, right now, it's also meaningless because to him, all pleasure is meaningless, as he says in, Pas- in, in Pedic 2, verse 1. Let me just pull that up. Right, so that's really interesting because he was just making such a great case, we think, for why one's better than the other. So what does he say in 2.1? Right, let me go engage in pleasure. That's also Hevel. So it's amazing. This whole pedic he's been telling us, and even from the last pedic, the only thing worth living for is physical pleasure. But you know something? That's also Hevel. But you know what? It, you might as well, because what else are you going to do? That's how meaningless everything is. It's so sad, and it's really, it, it reaches this level of, of real nihilism and depression and hedonism. And he, he kind of doesn't, he, he doesn't really know what to do with himself. He doesn't know how to resolve this, because on the one hand, he feels like pleasure is enjoyable, but he realizes that it's also quite empty. Both pleasure that you enjoy with the satisfaction of right now and pleasure that you're seeking out for the future, both of them are equally meaningless. And that just kind of, uh, you know, it's like a stab. It like kind of stabs you right in the chest uh, when you hear that because it's like, I thought we finally found that one thing to latch onto that could be meaningful, but even that he has to take away from us. Um, and of course, we don't have to necessarily agree, but we want to leave space for his opinion. Michael. Um, yes. Uh, what I'm having trouble with is, you know, if he's going to make a claim, you want it, you want it to be substantive and, and backed up. So he, so I, I was waiting for uh, his, a why to come, you know, so, okay. You know, the only thing that's meaningful is, you know, physical enjoyment. And then he takes it away from us and, and yeah. he just, he says it he almost mean, emptily, he he just says, oh, but that's meaningless too. So I, I was hoping for, you know, does he come in at any point and say why? Because otherwise it's just his opinion and then it doesn't really hold merit. Yeah, I think it's because life is, is uh, limited. Just because. Just because, yeah, <laughs> life is limited. You know, you end up the same place as the animals do, right? And there's, and there's no, there, nothing comes of it. And once you're gone, there goes everything. And even if it, it's passed on to your kid, who knows what he'll do with it? And maybe it won't even be passed on to your kid. So a, he attacks it throughout the book from multiple different directions as to why everything is meaningless. Because what can you actually hold on to as a person, as a limited human? There's nothing you can hold on to st- substantively. Yeah, he's saying it doesn't last. I mean, he keeps saying it over and over again. We all end up dying. That's why it's meaningless. Nothing lasts. And you know what? It's a good, it's a good thing for us to remind ourselves of. Right? I think on Yom Kippur, we... We say Anan, we say, we didn't remember the day of death. Why, why do we say that? Well, the point is, you, if you're cognizant of your transience as a human, you'll be living much more meaningfully. Oh, and this is something I wanted to mention earlier, um, and it fits exactly with what we were saying. I love doing those stoic meditations that Sam Harris has on his Waking Up app. Uh, one of them I've mentioned before is negative visualization that you imagine whatever is in front of you might not be there. And then you restore it to its existence and it's extremely meaningful for it to be there. Like you could do it right now. Imagine there was no class right now. Imagine you were alone in your room and you were doing something that you don't enjoy. But instead you're talking with your friends 
about some fun topics or maybe some meaningless topics, whatever Kohelet would assess it to be. But the point is, it might not be and then restore it to what it is. And like, that's really a beautiful thing. It's a pleasant thing. And that's something you could remind yourself throughout your day, negative visualization. Um, and to me, that's what Mud Anayim is all about, that just whatever is in front of you might not be there. So the fact that it is there, try and appreciate that. Um, so let's, uh, we'll conclude with the last section. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Okay, great. So we have uh, the last three Pesukim. Let me make sure. Sorry about that. So the last three Pesukim, 10 through 12, are going to be talking about life being unchangeable and the fact that the future is completely hidden. Can right. I so let's see. For, can I just jump in for a second before you move on? Um, yes. Does, does anybody compare what we're, what we're reading now to... Uh, I guess like what the Rambam says about, uh, I guess like, uh, I'm, try I'm trying to remember, it's been, it's been so long ago since I read this. Um, about, like, doesn't he encourage you to like to, to uh, I guess, to write things down, like keep a diary or to write down your philosophies and you kind of live on through that? I'm sure he does say something like that. Harambam was a huge fan of truth. He thinks that if there's one thing about us humans that lives on, it's the truth, the truth that we amass, the knowledge and the wisdom, he thinks is literally spiritually lives on. Your right. dot of lives on. So yeah, I'm sure if you write down and you invest in that, that's going to be the part of your nishama in a sense that lives on because God, after all, is truth. In Harambam's view, uh, and that's right. part of you. That you know, when, when we keep hearing about meaning and the search for meaning, obviously it comes up. You know, Viktor Frankl, I think, uh, who wrote a, a fantastic book about that, uh, about man's search for meaning. I forget the name, and obviously also Rabbi Sachs uh, talking about. Uh, you know, I, I think we're reading about that in the uh, in the book club. But uh, you know, Rambam was a little different. Like you said, it, it, for him, the ultimate aim in life is uh is learning and and knowledge knowledge is the, the purpose of existence essentially it's a little different yes 100 yes. and but and doc yeah the name of the book is man's search for meaning so you, you hit it on that got it <laughs> it's a very good book if anyone hasn't read it yet you should read it foundational probably one of the my top 10 100 um so let's jump in let's see what he has to say so first of all uh, it's futile to argue with God, says Michael Fox. That, that's what Kohelet's saying. Or even to speak too much is futile. So now this, to me, is extremely interesting. This next section is going to be really intriguing. Um, and he quotes Wittgenstein here, who says, Whereof one cannot speak, thereof he must keep silent. Meaning there's certain things that we cannot speak about, and therefore we should just remain silent. And one of them is regarding... God's justice and understanding God's view of the world. So let's see uh, what he has to say about that. kevar adam im Whatever happens, it was designated long ago, and it was known that it would happen, right? And I don't think this means from a um, from a deterministic point of view. It's not saying that. It's saying 
that th these patterns, these types of things are not new. Like anything you can do is not new. It's all just a repetition of something that's already happened. Right? As for man, he cannot contend with what is stronger than he, or better yet, with he, with he or whom is stronger than he. Right? Im Shetakif Menu could be talking about the being, which is God, who is, is stronger or mightier than he. Right? So um, God has made a world of eternal repetitions. We've seen that in, in uh, chapter three and, 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 and the like. Uh, humans cannot change this inexorable course of events. The course of human events is so re repetitive that you, it's just never going to be able to be changed. Um, it was designated long ago because its nature was already known or was already called into existence. Um, and it, what does it mean that, it, that, that we know what would, that, sorry, that it was known what would happen. There's nothing new beneath the sun, as we already mentioned. Um, and now this idea of that, is a question? Why are we being anti-deterministic? Uh, in other words, what, what are we, in other words, you're defending, you, you know, you're being like sensitive, like, oh, he's not being deterministic. I mean, he is being deterministic. Yeah. So what is the problem with that anyway? I don't, I, I don't have an agenda necessarily to say that he's not being deterministic for that, for its own sake, but I don't think that that's what he means here. I don't think he means it in the same philosophical way that we mean it when we say that it's that, that you don't have free will. I don't think he's making a statement about free will so much as he's making a statement about the meaninglessness of the actions that you do choose to take. So he's saying, in my opinion, you can choose to do things, but no matter what you choose to do, it's going to be meaningless because all actions are a repetition of things that already have been. Yeah, but you're saying repetition. Sense. I don't see the word repetition here. I would look at it, even if you don't want to say that, uh, if you want to say we have free will, I have no issue with that. I don't think he's taking issue with free will. But you could say that the natural course of history has already been written. And, you know, just like when you live, you know, you're going to die. Uh, you know, the, the, the God or, or the, you know, the creator has already determined the, the way the world is going to unfold. And, and you're nothing anyway. You know, there's little you could do one way or the other. Anyway, that, that's kind of my take, uh, you know, of not to necessarily get away your free will, but the point is, yeah, you may have free will, but you're so unimportant and you can't change anything anyway. Yes, I, I agree 100%. I agree with everything you said. I think that it's a statement about the inexorability of world events and, and human, uh, you know, human life in general, like you're saying. Um, and it's not necessarily a statement about your own personal free will, just about the, the limits on the actions that you can ever take and the accomplishments that you can ever have. But I could see right? apologists, you know, saying, oh, no, this is not saying, you know, you know, that you don't have free will because obviously, you know, our, there's a rabbinic, uh, you know, uh, you know, history of saying, you know, that we're, we're based on free will. And, and obviously the Bible, you know, says that we have choice and you can choose, yeah. uh, you know, and there's consequences to your actions and all that. Yeah. Agreed. I, yeah, I don't. I don't think we, we that. Uh, you know, I, I would have no problem if if he was if he were saying that. I just don't think that that's uh, uh, you know the, the the exact point that he's making regarding a philosophical idea about free will. Like I'm saying, I think it's just more about in general the totality of the actions of humanity will not change. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Um, 
right? So then just this idea of as for men, he cannot contend with what or with whom is stronger than he, right? And it's, it seems to be talking about God. And if you've ever read Shai uh, Agnon, Me'oyev Le'ohev, a beautiful uh, story, he actually uses this, uh, this, this phrase, Misha Takif Mimenu, you can't fight with whoever is stronger than you. Uh, it's a beautiful little story, uh, very similar to the, to the three little pigs regarding a person who tries to build a house in Israel and the wind keeps blowing it down. And it's really a, a symbolic idea regarding the uh, Israeli-Arab relations. But that's a story for another time. Just if you've ever read that in Flatbush, super awesome quote from that, uh, from that story comes from this book, Kohelet. Um, so basically, in, a, in sum, what Kohelet is saying in this por- por- portion is we should not struggle with God as, for example, who did? Eov did. Eov struggled with God. Eov had this, this mighty struggle. We shouldn't do that. We should not question. Not because we don't have the right to question, but just Kohelet's outlook contrasts with that of Eov. Eov believed that if he could only confront God, he said, if only if I could get God in front of me to ask him these questions, maybe there'd be a change. And if not a change, at least I want an explanation, says Eov. Kohelet Don't forget, Moshe uh, Rabbeinu and Avraham Avinu both uh, confronted Hashem with, uh, with of questions about his actions. It's such a Navi thing to do. Yirmiyahu says, God, Sadiqa ta Adonai ki ari ach Right, that he says, God, I know you're going to defeat me in a, in a court of law. But still, I need to bring you to task and I need to tell you the things that I think are wrong. That's the way of the Jewish prophets, of, of the Israelite prophets, is to speak their mind despite it being to God himself. And that's you know, a symbol of who we are as a people. We don't accept the world that is. We insist on the world that ought to be, in the words of Rabbi Sachs. That's faith as protest. Um, but so, so Eov was looking for a change or at least an explanation but Kohelet expects neither a change nor an explanation. In his view, God exists and God is sovereign, but silence is the only proper reaction to being in the presence of God and being in, fear, in awe of God and having fear of God. The only prudent thing to do is silence, um, right? So it's, it's in light of the fact that we're so powerless, how little we can do as humans and how little we understand, right? The limits of, of the of efficacy of our actions and the limits of our wisdom. In, life, in light of both of those things, the only thing that there's left to do in the view of Kohelet is be silent. And we, we see that in some, uh, some portions of Judaism, you know, not necessarily when it comes to confronting injustice, but lecha the hachamim say in, in the pasuk in Tehilim, I believe it is, that to you, God, silence is praise. The pshat means to you, God, praise is fitting. But if you want to say dumiya means silence, you could say to you, God, silence is praise because silence is the only thing that doesn't reduce God into a, a concept. And just this, the, what, you know, Eov happens to be at the end of the book, after demanding of God an explanation, he is silent. He, is, he does say, Hen kaloti he says, after experiencing God in this whirlwind and seeing all these visions, 
How can I possibly respond? I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so in awe of everything that God is. There's nothing for me to even speak. And, you know, maybe Kohelet's at that level, but also it seems that Kohelet's at, at this level just from the sake of, he doesn't hope for more than this. And it's not necessarily despair per se. It's just that he doesn't expect God to, to answer because he thinks God is a being that's so far beyond his comprehension that he doesn't have a right to question it. And we feel that way sometimes, don't we? Right? Sometimes we feel like Yov, but sometimes we feel like Kohelet does. Um, right? So, so let's see, Pasuk 11. Ki yesh devarim marbim Often much talk means much futility. How does it benefit a man? Right? What's the point in all this speaking? Why do you have to talk all this stuff out? It, there's no purpose in it. No matter how much you speak out these things, you're not going to benefit yourself. You're not going to understand more about the world. Just stop it. Stop. You know, that's sometimes what you want to tell some of these philosophers. They're, they're twisting and turning their, their, their brains and their minds in all these different directions. But at the end of the day, there's a fundamental mysteriousness to the nature of existence that you want to just look at these philosophers and say, okay, that's enough with you. Let's just experience the world as it is. Enough with this left brain shenanigans. Let's engage the right brain and just experience. Yeah. Right? Does that ring a, like uh, ring true for anybody? It does for me, <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> let's finish with, uh, with the last pasuk. Right? Who can possibly know what is best for a man to do in life the few days of his fleeting life? Asher, right? And katsel is, is, is this idea um, which passes or which he passes like a shadow. His life is so quick. For who can tell him what the future holds for him under the sun? Nobody knows. Nobody could tell him what's next um, for himself or for all of humanity, right? So you can't really know what's best to do because if you don't know the consequences of the action, right, you don't, you don't know what the future holds. So you don't know what, what's the next thing to do. You can't really give advice about what's the best course of action in this world if you don't have a guarantee as to the result of any action because things are so haphazard so often. Things happen so randomly, you can never really give somebody advice that will be automatic and guaranteed to, pres- to produce a certain result, right? So first of all, just to address what he said in the beginning, don't speak so much because no one knows what's good to do, right? If you don't know what's good to do, don't speak so much, right? Then definitely <laughs> don't speak, right? And nobody knows what's good to do, so nobody should speak. Right. So the prerequisite for discerning what actions are good in the sense of beneficial is knowing their consequences. So if you don't know the consequences of actions, you can't really know what's beneficial. You shouldn't really speak. Um, And because the future is hidden, humans are ignorant. Right. We're fundamentally ignorant of the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And therefore, it's best to be silent. And this is so funny. This is ironic. Why is it ironic? It's self-directed irony, because what is the whole book? He's, you know, this whole book is Kohelet himself. He, he's uh, expostulating in the words of Michael Fox. He's rambling yeah, <laughs> on what's good, what's tov for human beings to do. And we'll continue in this vein in the next chapter, right? He's going to continue to keep doing this, 
right? So, so it's funny because in the Tao Te Ching, uh, by it's attributed to Lao Tzu. He has a beautiful. It's, I highly recommend reading that. By the way, if you haven't, it's a really profound read. One of the things that he says is, "He who says it does not know. He who knows it does not say." And that's regarding some kind of truth and wisdom. And then it's like Lao Tzu. Didn't you write this whole book? <laughs> Why are you saying? says it does not know he knows it does not say and then it's kind of like a wink you know there's still a value so this is what i mean when i when i say kohelet himself intuitively knows that what he's saying is not entirely true he he would have committed suicide if life is really no better than death he would never even engage in wisdom if wisdom is equal to folly he would never be writing this book in the first place if he didn't think there was a value at all in words but i think there's a value in what he's saying because he's like i feel torn on the one hand, I'm a human being. I have these intuitive needs to do these things. But on the other hand, I feel like there's no point in it. And, you know, I, I think this is a profound statement. There's a book called The Master and His Emissary. My friend Meyer Benin really uh, loves this book. And I, I only read 10 pages of it. But from what I gathered so far and from speaking with my friend, The Master and His Emissary is about the left brain, right brain dichotomy in the human mind, in the human person. And the left, obviously, it's not a clear-cut thing, and there's a lot of, you know, caveats to understanding the, the dichotomy of the human brain. But at the end of the day, these are very left-brain questions that Kohelet's trying to understand. And a lot of these truths about life cannot be understood logically with your left brain. They need, fundamentally, to be experienced with your right brain. So you want to know the meaning of life? It's ineffable. It cannot be spoken. It cannot be found in the pages of Kohelet, it has to be experienced in love, in relationships, in work, in all these things. And if you don't experience it, you cannot possibly find meaning. So that's- Sounds, the, like, the, um, <clears throat> sounds like the dichotomy between science and religion and understanding that's the same thing. There you go. And that's Rabbi Sachs makes that exact point in The Great Partnership. He says religion corresponds to the right hemisphere and, and science to the left hemisphere. They're apples and oranges. They shouldn't, you know, be in contradiction. So that's that's my whole response, basically, to Kohelet is you're looking for truth and wisdom and experience in the wrong place. You're looking for it in the left brain, in philosophy, in deductive reasoning. You're never going to find it there. You're going to have to find it in actual raw experience of the world. And I know he did engage in experience, but, you know, there's certain things that that you can't bring with you to the next moment. They can only be experienced in that moment. Um, right. So, so just to, to make a couple more points and then we'll open it up for more questions and comments. Um, so what does it mean? The few days of his fleeting life of Hevel, right. And, and we have this word katsel, the Asim katsel, that he passes his days like a shadow. And we know from Tehillim, there's a beautiful pasuk, Adam la Hevel dama, yamav katsel over, right. Hevel is a, is a word that he loves in this book. A man is like a fleeting breath. Yamav, his days are like a passing shadow, like a, like a bird flying really quickly. You see it's a shadow for a second. Life, in the same way, slips past and leaves behind no trace. All right, so and the human breath is the same way. It's there for a second, and it's gone the next. And that's why the, the person named Hevel was named Hevel in the Torah, because he was killed almost immediately into the story. All right, so just to end like this, within a person's own lifetime under the sun, is this idea of what the future holds, right? So you don't know what's going to happen in your lifetime. Um, and therefore, because you, you have no idea what could possibly happen, you can never give advice 
to anybody or say anything of real value. So I think we could take solace in the way in what we were just discussing, which is despite all these true claims by Kohelet, now he's kind of, you know, the same way you can't state what God is in a positive way. I can't say God is goodness or God is truth. None of that will ever do justice to what God truly is. What can I say about God? Logically, I can say what God is not. So the same thing with the meaning of life, I would say. It's ineffable. The same way God is ineffable. You can't speak it. So the more we learn from Kohelet about what meaningfulness is not, the more we can strip away the things that are really meaningless and really get to that which is meaningful, which in my opinion is genuine experience and refer back to Jonathan Haidt's happiness hypothesis. So the same way we can't say what God is, we can only say what God is not. We can't say what meaning is, we can say what meaning is not. And then you go look for it in other places and hopefully you'll find it and don't fall into the pitfalls that Kohelet's warning you about. So that I think was really a, a very profound class. So thank you so much guys for, for attending that. I wanna hear your questions and comments. If you have any more. Uh, I would just say I like that uh, that analogy, you know, with uh, with what Hashem is and what uh, with what meaning is. I think that makes a lot of sense. It doesn't really give you the answer, unfortunately, but uh, it lets you weed away what what is not meaningful, right? And then you can look for meaning elsewhere. Yes, it's saying don't look here and don't look here, and you know you're left with only a few more options. So go try those. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Really, what a pleasure. And you guys, you bring out my best. I've, I find this very intimate crowd, uh, a very meaningful one. Obviously, we love it when a lot of people show up, but I, I think it was really beautiful just to engage with you guys and hear your thoughts and really such thoughtful comments throughout. And you guys are on fire. You guys are all my MVP of the night. Michael. Um, yes, Albert. I have a question. Was he maybe about 10 minutes ago, we were talking about this topic, um, or, or, you know, specifically, we were talking about the meaninglessness or how life is not meaningful, because I think what essentially what was being said was that, you know, nothing changes under the sun, right? It, it's everything is spoken for that there's nothing new, nothing will ever be new. Um, so is essentially what he's saying is, if that weren't the case, if you can create if you can change would that would would that be meaningful i think he's saying no matter what you create and no matter what you change about the world it will still be meaningless because nothing ever really lasts so he's saying the best you can do is hope to enjoy pleasure right now so nihilistic <laughs> nihilistic it really is and you know what it's it's a hard thing to answer but i think for me finding those moments in which things are infinitely meaningful doesn't have to just be he's kind of right he's right about finding things that are infinitely meaningful in the moment but you don't have to restrict those things to just physical pleasure you can also find infinitely meaningful things especially more than in physical pleasure in social relationships belonging to groups relationship with God, uh, experiencing nature, all these things. But of course, my words are just sounds. You got to go out and do it yourself. You got to go out and experience the world yourself. Nobody could, you know, there's, I love to give this analogy. We, we always read Sefer Vayikra, we read about the Mishkan and we say, where's the meaning in it? I don't understand. I read it. I don't find meaning. 
all these weeks go by and I find no meaning in the parashiyot. And the answer, I think, is very often because it's, it's like trying to give somebody a textbook about the game of baseball. And they say, isn't baseball amazing? It's like, well, I read this textbook. It's kind of boring. <laughs> you know, you didn't, why, you didn't go play on the field. You didn't put on a glove. You didn't uh, take a bat in your hands and feel what it's like to hit a home run. That's the point. No amount of philosophizing with your left brain can ever do justice to what the right brain is going to go out into the world and experience. So that's the key is stop reading the textbook on life and go and actually physically enjoy life. But don't only engage in physical pleasures. Go out and see what are those things that are really meaningful. It could be spiritual things. It could also be some physical things. So you find those things that are, uh, that are meaningful for you. You know, maybe, maybe this is a naive way. Thank you for that, by the way. That was very nice. Um, you know, this may be a naive way of thinking about it, but isn't there meaning in, every, in literally everything that is available to us in, you know, that we can dream of and, and chase or, or pursue or create because nothing lasts? You know, because if everything, wow. because if everything were to last, then really would, nothing would have meaning ever. Imagine if we didn't have a, a clock ticking. Imagine we didn't we didn't have an hourglass that reflected our life. You could sit you back. For, you could sit. You could sit back for ten thousand years, for a million years, for, and and it would be okay because you have the time. Albert, that is such a deep truth. I can't. I, I can't even express to you how much I agree with that. Did you see that the the show The Good Place? Anybody here see the show The Good Place? Yeah. Yeah. So Fantastic show. That's the message of the good place is that if you could live out forever and ever and ever, that's when things really become meaningless. You want to talk about meaningful when you know it's limited, when you know that there's a destination to the journey and that the train comes to a halt, then you really start living more meaningfully. So that's exactly the point, Albert. I'm so glad you made that point. It wasn't really my, you know, nothing's new under the sun. It's just a a thought that I stole. (laughs) I feel it. I stole it from, and maybe with a little variation. You ever see the movie Troy? It's based on Homer's Odyssey. I haven't anyone, seen it, but I... Anyone ever see it with Brad Pitt? It's an old movie. And with uh, Eric Eric Banner? No, anyone? So oh, wow. uh, he, he... There's a, one of the king's uh, uh, daughters or, or granddaughters or is, is taken by another army, and then he, he ends up with Brad Pitt, and they have this they have this, uh, they start philosophizing and uh, he says something to the effect of, you know, she makes, she makes fun of him like he knows nothing about his gods. Obviously, you know, this is not a uh, monotheistic time and place, but they have many, many gods. And, and he says to her, I know more about the gods than you'll ever know. And he goes, the truth is the gods envy us. He goes, because, because wow. basically, basically of, what, of what this is talking about is, is that is that their their time is limited. And he says to her, he says, we will never be more beautiful than you are right now. We will never be here again. Wow. That yeah, is such so a powerful cool. line. It was like, you know, time is fleeting and and you know, and we'll never get that back. That is unbelievable. And uh, you know, call me crazy, call me crazy, but it helps me kind of understand why God decides to create the world, right? In a very, uh, you know, uh, in a big analogy, if God is, you know, this is what the Hachamim say in one of, one of their Midrashim that Jordan Peterson quotes in 12 Rules for Life at the end of his book, 
if you're already everything always all the time your infinity then there's no story there's nothing to to live out there's you're already all of it you're already everything there's 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 no lacking there's no growth so why did god create the world because he wants to grow in a way obviously we don't understand what that means but it could kind of give us a glimpse into understanding that just just you know existing and infinitely is not so meaningful maybe there's a meaning in living as a limited human and maybe that's why god manifests as us who knows but uh, right. yeah that was the anti kohelet you know uh, you just basically <laughs> was, blew apart oh, kohelet yeah. completely with that argument that was, that was exactly exactly it that if anything kohelet is proving to us how meaningful life is because you know, in order for us to find meaning, everything needs to be limited and it cannot be any other way. Unbelievable. Really? You guys are, are superstars. I, I, uh, I have no words. I really don't. Azaka Baruch. Enjoy, we enjoy your class. You're great, Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed so much. You guys are, are the best. Alamak. All right. Thanks, all. Have a good night. Bye. Take care, everyone. Take care, guys.